Hi, folks, and thank you for tuning in to this bonus segment of Next on the T featuring America's caddy, Michael Collins. Michael, as you know, is just one of the most fun human beings on the planet. Makes this segment so much fun to be a part of. And one of the things that I've taken away from the interactions I've gotten to have with Michael is our game is privileged and better because Michael Collins is a part of it. He makes this segment a lot of fun. He is very talented. We all know what a talented comedian he is. He's a fantastic storyteller. He's a great broadcaster. And now he's turned himself into a fantastic photographer. We talk about all of those things in this segment. Sit back, relax, enjoy it. And thank you again for tuning in and listening to the show. Okay, now next on the tee with me is America's caddy, Michael Collins. You know him from his days at ESPN, but let's go back a little bit. He's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the opposite side of the state from my hometown of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. He's been a comedian, a caddy, a journalist, a broadcaster, a golf analyst, and now you can add on photographer. He's a fantastic photographer. (laughs) Folks, we'll get into that. (laughs) And he makes the game so much more fun than it was before he was a part of it, and I'm excited he is with me here today on Next on the T. Hey, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Chris, man. Really appreciate it. It's been a long time coming. Sorry it's taking me so long to get here with you. Hey, I know you're really busy, Michael. I really appreciate the time and having you with me here today. Michael, I I read that you didn't start out playing golf until nah. you were 22 years old. What got you to take up the game? Yeah, I was a little bit, just a smidge younger than that. Probably, yeah, 21, 20, around then. I, I just started doing stand-up comedy, and it was another comedian who made me play golf. and. He goes, his name was Lee Schaefer uh, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania as well. And he says to me, you got to go play golf, man, because golf is in our industry and it'll help get you in the door at comedy club. And he used to watch it on TV and stuff. He was an addict. So I was like, what you got, like narcolepsy or something? You got a sleep disorder? You need to take naps before we do shows on Saturday or Sunday? Like, what you doing, man? He was like, no. And then he goes, this is what you do. Call a comedy club and tell them you want to come do five minutes on their stage, right? And then call a comedy club and just tell them you'll be in the area playing golf and could you stop in and see which one lets you get on stage. And wouldn't you know, the one that I called and said, hey, I'm just going to be playing some golf, was the manager was, oh, yeah, where are you playing? You got room for another? Of course, come on over, swing by. And then I called him up was like, oh, my gosh, it worked, dude. I can't believe this. You got to show me what to do. So we went out to this little par three pitch and putt course that was, it was $2.50 to play. It was in Akron, Pennsylvania, um, which is this little suburb of Ephrata and Lancaster. This is in the heart of Amish country. This is like this little goat track. And he was left-handed. That's what I think saved the day because I played hockey lefty and bat lefty in baseball. So he let me borrow a couple of his left-handed clubs, and he came out with me, and we played 18 holes, and he was like, what do you think? And I was like, I got five more dollars. I'll be here. I got to figure this out. (laughs) And that was it. I was hooked. The next time I had, the next big paying gig I had was like a feature. I was a feature act, which means I got to go second. I made $400 for two shows, and which at the time, it was huge money. And I took the $400, and instead of paying my car note, I went to a sporting goods store and bought a new set of Cobras. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And because I was, that was it. That's all I wanted to do was just 
So in the daytime, I would go play golf. And at night, I would just do stand-up. So that was my routine. Michael, I read that SNL used to make your mom laugh, and you wanted to make her laugh just like that. Were those SNL moments, was that the time that really you decided, you know what, I want to become a comedian? No, it actually goes back even earlier than that. Um, when I was about four, four or five, probably, I think I was about four. I remember a Christmas, my mom and my grandparents took me to the Fulton Opera House in downtown Lancaster to see um, the Nutcracker, the ballet. And I had never been to the, to an opera house or anything like that or seen anything like that ever before. And I remember the places slam packed. I mean, it was just an opera house that was full and we had really good seats. And so the lights go down, the curtains go up and spread out. And the first dancer, the male dancer comes out and he's wearing his outfit. But I had never seen a male ballet dancer before. So I'm standing. I remember my grandfather was holding me and I was standing on his lap and I said loud, Papa, I can see his hiney. <laughs> and the opera house exploded in laughter. <laughs> I mean, exploded. And I ne- and even the dancer smirked, right? And I'll <laughs> never forget knowing that I did that. Like that I made that happen. And then later when I was o- a little bit older, and my mom used to let me stay up on Saturday nights and watch Saturday Night Live with her, you know, and I would watch like Jim Belushi and Richard Pryor and when Steve Martin would host and like all of the biggest legends of comedy back in the day, you know, Garrett Morris, like all of those guys, Chevy Chase, like I thought, man, I want to seeing how my mom laughed so hard. I was like, yeah, that's, I want to do that. Like I want to make people laugh doing that. And then when I had the opportunity and there was two places, um, the Uptown Comedy Club in Lancaster and uh, the Italian Villa uh, was the other one, which ironically, there's another funny thing about that one. But uh, they had open mics and the, the Uptown Comedy Club had an open mic on Wednesday night. You could, anybody could get up and do five minutes. And so my friends found out about it. And they bugged me. And for two months, I told them, no, nope. They Come on, man, just do five minutes. You got to get up there and do nah, nah. And I never told them why. But the real the the honest truth on why I didn't put it off for two months was because it was my dream. And I was afraid if I went on stage and wasn't funny, I just lost my dream. Well, now what? Like now I don't even have something where at least if you have a dream and you don't go after it, you can't lose it. You can't ever get it, but you can't lose it either. Right. right? Yep. And so after two months, finally, I was like, listen, I'll do this. I'll get up. I'll do five minutes. Just it was three of my buddies that two guys bugged me for like two months. And then three of the third one jumped in and I was like, listen, I'm going to do this. Don't tell anybody. Just you three guys come and that's it. All right. If I do this, then will you leave me alone? And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And of course they told everybody. And so this club that only held like 70 people, it was 120. They were way over fire code. (laughs) And it's the only time I've ever thrown up before I went on stage. The MC walks over to someone was on stage and he goes, all right, the next the guy, the next guy's over there. Then you. All right. You ready? Oh, yeah. And when he walked away, I just ran to the bathroom and puked. And like it was it was like an Eminem moment. 
And I'll never forget, he he brought me on stage and I couldn't feel my hands and I couldn't feel my feet. And I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I told my first joke. And when I hit my punch, like for people who, you know, people that's the number one fear is public speaking, right? Right. So you're up on stage in front of people and you're terrified like that. Or just for me, it was like so anxious. When you go into that fight or flight mode like that, time really slows down really really slow so like i hit the punchline and it felt like nothing happened and then i had there was a conversation between the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other so the devil on one shoulder goes see i told you i told you, you shouldn't have done this i told you, you weren't funny i told you, you were going to have a dream you couldn't do this and the other the angel on the shoulder was like just wait for it wait for it and then it, you, you hear something that sounds like thunder and in processing those two things like happening in my head at that time, then pow, like the laughter hits you. And and it hits you honestly like a sound wave and you feel it in your chest. And then when it hit me, it was like this wash just kind of happened. And I took the mic out the mic stand and like I just felt comfortable. And I moved the mic behind me and just told the rest of my five minutes of jokes and stuff like that. And when I said, thank you, good night, my name is Michael Collins, put the mic back in. You know, everyone's going crazy, which was wild. And I walked to the back and that was the first time I met Lee Schaefer, him and another guy named Bud Tanger. And they were professional comedians traveling at the time and working. And they both were at the bar, kind of called me over. And I walked over and they're looking at each other and they look at me and they go, hey, how come we haven't seen you out working the circuit? Like, where where, where do you perform? Where, where are the clubs you do? And I go, no, nah, that, that was my first time ever doing stand-up on stage. And they looked at each other and then Bud looked at Lee and looked at me and said, you found what you need to be doing. And that was it. From that night on, I was hooked. Wow. What a great story. All right, so I'm Italian, so you got to tell me the Italian villa story. So here's something funny, and I'm sure you've seen Amanda Renner on television. Yep. For CBS. Formerly, her her maiden name is Amanda Balionis. Well, Amanda Balionis' dad, his best friend, owned the Italian villa Mm. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And Amanda and I didn't even realize we were both, because she went to Mannheim Township, and I went to McCaskey. So she went to the high school that Jim Furyk went to. And I went to the inner city high school. We didn't even know we were both from Lancaster, PA, until we had done a couple things together when she, back in the day when she worked at PG, when she worked for the PGA Tour. And I was doing XM radio and doing stuff on PGA Tour with them as well. And then we, we realized that not only were we both from Lancaster, but her dad and one of the guys who owned the comedy club in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he still lives there, um, they were best friends. So it was kind of wild that. Even in golf, like me and Amanda have ties together through my comedy career. Michael, let's talk about your golf career and your relationship with Omar Uresti and how that relationship led you to get not only inside the ropes, (laughs) but on the bag for him during a tournament. Tell that story. That's crazy. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. So 1998, um, well, 1997, I come up with this idea, right? Because I now I'm into golf. And I was like, you know what? I should start booking comedy wherever the tour is going to be. And I bet you I'll meet somebody at a comedy club 
that will have tickets and I can go watch golf. Like, this would be awesome. I bet you no one's thought of that, bro. Every comedian on the planet <laughs> had thought of that. So I was never going to be able to book stuff around whenever a tournament was going to be until a buddy of mine who had been, he was doing stand-up comedy, and he, he booked Hilton Head every year for like 10 years. Whenever the tournament was in Hilton Head, he would book it. Well, one year his wife was pregnant, and they were going to have the baby the week of the tournament. So he couldn't perform that week. So he calls me and is like, look, I don't want anybody other than you because you're the only other one that loves golf and you're probably not even going to get to go to the tournament, but whatever. So I get booked to go to be there that week. Well, it turned out a kid I went to high school was an assistant pro at one of the courses in in, in Hilton Head, uh, Indigo Run, one of the Nicholas courses. And so I called him up and was like, hey, man, I'm coming the week of the tournament, but it's going to be great. And he's like, okay, good. I'll get his tickets. We can go on Tuesday. Now, I don't know anything about professional golf. So when he says that, I was like, um, I don't think they play until Saturday, dude. Like, what What do you mean? Tuesday, <laughs> tournament don't start till Saturday and Sunday. That's when it's on TV. And he was like, no, no, we'll go watch the practice round. And I just laughed and was like, come on, man, golf practice, bruh. <laughs> that sounds like the stupidest thing. And I mean, I felt like Allen Iverson. Before Allen Iverson, because it was 98. <laughs> so we end up going, and we walk into the gate. And back then, the practice putting green was elevated right at the entrance. So you would walk in, and there would be these professional golfers, like, standing above you putting. And this one golfer just stops putting and walks over. Hey, man, how you doing? Long time no see. And I'm like, uh, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> it's great. You doing shows this week? And I was like, yeah, actually, I am. He was like, that's great, man. We got to catch up. It's been too long. Well, I'll come to a show and we'll, we'll hang out. Okay. All right, cool. And he walks away. Now, my buddy, who's an assistant pro, he knows everything about pro golf. He looks at me and he's like, you know Billy Andre? I'm like, I've never seen that guy before in my life. <laughs> we found out later he thought I was Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Because <laughs> I was about 100 pounds thinner. And that was my first nickname on tour was Lil Hootie because everybody thought that I looked like Hootie. Actually, a couple years later, we went to a club in Hilton Head. And they we showed up on a limo, me and Chris Carter's brother, and they let us in thinking that he was my bodyguard. And then the rest were the band members. It was ridiculous. <laughs> we never told him that it wasn't. <laughs> the thing. So anyway, my friend's freaking out. And he's like, man, you can't be talking to golfers. And I'm like, I, he started. I didn't say nothing. And so I was like, well, let's go find somebody where no one's like around so we can't bug him. And he was all right. So we go and I'm standing on the 11th tee and this caddy walks up to me. And he's like, hey, Hoss, how you doing? I was like, oh, nothing, man, what's going on? He was like, what do you do, Hoss? And I was like, I'm a stand-up comedian. He was like, nah, uh Hey, Omar, this guy's a comedian. And so here comes Omar Uresti. And it happened to be his brother, Rusty, that was caddying for him. And Omar walks on the team and is like, are you a comedian? And I said, yeah. Now my friend is freaking out. But Omar's like, do you know Rodney Carrington? And I go, yeah, I just performed with him at the Stardome in Alabama not too long ago. And he was like, awesome, man, come under the ropes, walk with us. And he lifts the ropes up. So I think this is normal. So I'm like, all right, walk under the ropes. <laughs> now, my friend, I look over, he looks like he's about to start crying. I'm like, what the heck is wrong with this dude? Because he, I mean, he knows that we're not, this is not normal for us to be under the ropes. So we walk a couple holes with Omar and his, bus, his brother, Rusty, who, a.k.a., his nickname was Hoss because he never remembered anybody's name. So he only called everybody Hoss because they couldn't remember a name. So after a few holes, then, you know, I was like, hey, I got to get out of here. I got a show tonight. 
And Omar's like, can we come to the show? Yeah, sure. And I'm thinking he's not going to really show up. But I go tell the comedy club owner, hey, there's a, a pro and his caddy uh, who might come. Can we hook him up with tickets? Yeah, yeah. So they showed up. And it was had a fun show. It was a lot of fun. Afterwards, Omar's like, man, I played so good when you're walking. You got to come hang out the rest of the week. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't have tickets. And he just laughed. And he comes back with two clubhouse badges for me. Wow. So long, long story short, by the end, of, and then like Wednesday, he's introducing me to other golfers and caddies. And they're like, can we all come to the, yeah, 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 of course. Which, and it was crazy, man. It's, it's, well, by the end of the week, 50 players and 100 caddies have been to the show. And wow. the craziest thing that happened that week, Friday, Omar plays early, which was great. So I'm, and I, I, by the end of the week, I had been dressing like a caddy. So this is 98, right? This is before 9-11 and security craze. So I would just put a towel on my shoulder and walk right up on the range. Like I would look, and Omar was like, man, this is crazy. How do you get on the range? And nobody says nothing to you. And I'm like, I just look like an angry black man who caddies on tour. <laughs> and even one of the security guards one time was like, because, you know, by the end of the week, everybody, I knew everyone. I was talking to everyone because I, I talk to anybody. I don't care. And so I hear one security guard as I walk by. The one volunteer was like, hey, did you see that guy's credential? And the other one was like, no, but he knows everybody. He's fine. Right? Wow. So I'm up on the driving range Friday after Omar's done. And Omar wants to do like a cool down session. And Hoss, his caddy, is like, hey, I'm going to go eat, man. So take care of Omar. Okay. So now he gives me the wet towel. So I got to clean the club. So I'm looking down the range and I'm looking like, okay, how are the caddies standing? All right, they got their arms crossed. And, like, they're look, standing there with their legs apart. Yeah, good shot. Look good. Perfect. Right? So I'm standing there trying to look as pro caddy as I can. And to the right of Omar is another guy who has a Ram golf bag and is hitting shots, too. And he turns and goes, hey, kid. And I look over and, yeah, come here and look at this. Okay. So I walk over there, and this guy takes a five iron and takes it about belt high. How's that look? I was like, oh, it looks good. I have no clue what the dude is asking me to look at. <laughs> so now he takes the club up to the top and he's like, is that square? And I'm looking at the shape of the club head. Yeah, it looks pretty square to me. Okay. <laughs> and now from that standstill, this dude hits a frozen rope. I mean, this ball, this is back when they were using the wound ballada golf balls. And this thing is on a string. It was hit perfect. And I go, see, I told you that was perfect. And he goes, yeah, thanks kid. That felt pretty good. So I walk back over to Omar, who hits another practice shot, and he comes back to the bag, and he goes, hey, man, what did Tom Watson want? <laughs> and I go, he wanted me to look at his swing. And Omar goes, what's your handicap? And I was like, what's a handicap? <laughs> and he goes, what do you shoot? And I was like, I shot 120 last week. Like, it was good. It was really good. <laughs> now, Omar's laughing so hard because Tom Watson just got swing advice from a dude who can't break 120 because <laughs> he thought I was a pro cat. I love that. So that was, that was my introduction to golf. And then after that, slowly but surely, I was, I did book a lot more comedy where around tournaments. Now and I then Tuesdays and Wednesdays, caddies would say, Hey man, Hey, little hootie. Like I said, <laughs> <laughs> that was my first nickname. It was like, yo, little Hootie, you want to caddy today? Carry the bag, man. Come on with us. And I'll be like, all right, because it'll be like, I'm thinking we're getting to be inside the ropes. Like, this is going to be awesome. 
not thinking that golf bag weighs 35 pounds and we're about to walk seven miles. (laughs) And I was just doing the caddy's job for him and stuff. But that's kind of how it started. And then the last tournament of 1998 was at Disney. And, um, I did something special for Omar kind of early in the week. Uh, his favorite group was uh, Judas Priest. Still is Judas Priest. Like, and I, Hard Rock's not really my thing, but he loved Judas Priest growing up as a kid. Like, that was his group. Well, it turned out Judas Priest was playing at the Hard Rock Cafe in Orlando. And I found out about it, and Omar didn't know. So I called him up and said, hey, um, I got a PGA Tour pro who's a huge fan would it be cool if we came down there? And they were like, oh, absolutely. So I made Omar go to the tour trucks back in the back then. And we got hats and t-shirts and stuff off the truck and went down there, ended up meeting the band, sat in the green room with them just by ourselves for like an hour and a half after the show. And they're golf maniacs. So wow, if they're golf maniacs. And so we, and then they had to, they were mad. They couldn't stay for the tournament. Cause they had to get on the tour bus and they had another city to be in the next day. So they couldn't even stay for the tournament, but Omar and them exchanged numbers. They were, and they played a lot of golf together since then. But anyway, that night, then me and him are walking out of the hard rock and it's me, Omar in an empty hard rock in, in Orlando. And he takes about five steps after they close the door and just lets out this. woo! Cause he was like, he met his heroes and they were cool guys who love golf. And now he was going to be friends with them. And wow. so Friday or Sunday, I'm sorry, Sunday at uh at the Disney tournament, um, Omar's playing. He started on he started on 10, so he was finishing on nine. And on the ninth tee box, he kind of hits Rusty. He hits Hoss on the shoulder. And Hoss calls me up to the tee, takes off the bib, and puts it on me and says, Bring him home. Wow. And so I tie the bib on. And Omar hits driver right down the middle, walk down, carrying a bag with them. This is real tournament golf. And we're just talking, man, about what a fun week it's been, what a crazy year it's been, blah, blah, blah. You know, and he does, he gets all his own numbers and all that stuff. And then hits seven iron to the middle of the green and lips out the birdie putt. So, but he makes par and which was cool, but still like if he would have made birdie, I may never have caddied again. <laughs> but yeah, so I got the, my first hole. And when I did it, I was like, man, this is awesome. And then fast forward less than a year later, um, Robert Gomez called me and was like, hey, I'm playing like crap. I'm not having fun on the golf course. My caddy quit. I just need to remember how to have fun on the golf course. Come caddy for me next week. And at the time it was Nike tour. He was like, I got to do a Nike tour rehab start. Come caddy for me. And I was like, yeah, why not? All right, I'll do it. And went to Louisiana. It was, I think it was in Homa and uh, I'll never forget. The course was underwater. We got no practice round and we were supposed to play in a pro-am. Pro-ams canceled because the course was underwater and they were, had, they had to let it dry. So we were only allowed to drive around the golf course on the golf cart path in a golf cart, no clubs. We could look at the course. Now, as someone who doesn't know anything about one caddying or look, I'm like, yep, there's a hole here too. Oh yeah, there's another thing that's got a that one's got a hole too. It must have 18 of these things. Awesome. <laughs> Thursday, it's round one and it's for real. And I'm got the bib on and I'm like, oh boy. First hole, downhill par five. 
And when Robert comes over and starts taking the club out of the bag, I looked at him and I go, hey, man, don't don't hit it in the sand down there because I don't know how to rake like a pro. OK, so. And I'll never he gives me I, like he has a strange look on his face. Like, I wonder why he looks like that. And of course, you know where he's hitting this T-ball now, <laughs> right in the bunker. And he slams the club down in the bag. And I'm like, I just told you, man, not to hit it over there. And he was like, you can't say that because then that's exactly where it's going to go. And I'm now, now you tell me what to say. And he laughs. And we get down to the bunker. And of course, it's all washed out. And I'm like, man, what you going to do? And he was like, I'm going to hit three wood into the front greenside bunker because this is a par five. I'm going to get up and down for birdie. And I'm like, fool. I just told you I don't know how to rake like a pro, and you're going to hit it in two sand traps on the first hole. <laughs> I was like, if you hit it in that front greenside bunker, I'm calling immigration and tell them you're illegal. You're not even here legal. <laughs> <laughs> and he gives me the, he laughs like that, jumps down, calls his shot, man. And he's posing as it goes in the front bunker. I put the bag down and I'm like, security, this dude's not even supposed to be here. He ain't illegal. He ain't got no paperwork. And he's laughing. He was like, get your bleepity bleep bleep down in the bunker to bleep bleep. And I'm laughing and stuff. And then we realized, oh crap, there's two other guys we're playing with. You know what I mean? And the looks on their face and their caddy's face, like, what in the hell's going on? What is these two? Like, we just walked into a comedy routine on the golf course. And that's how it started. But then after that week, there were other guys that gave me their phone number and said, look, when you got a week off of comedy, call me. Cause I need to remember how to have fun on the course too. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, yeah, I would just, I would go, then I'm, when guys would have me come out and caddy, I would go to other really good and really respected caddies and say, Hey, listen, teach me, teach me how to do this for right. Because this isn't a joke to me. Like I really loved it. I loved the psychological aspect of it, but I also knew like that. I didn't know what I was doing, but I loved the game and I didn't want to disrespect the game. So I'm like, teach me how to rate correctly. Tell me why when you walk off yardages, you walk them off at certain different angles. Why do you rate the bunker this way? Why do you like walk these angles? Why do you stand over here? What is that book that you're using? Like why, what, why are you walking these things off? What is that sheet that comes every day with the circles and stuff? What does that mean? And so thank goodness there were, there were some really amazing caddies that took me under their wing. And really taught me how to caddy the right way. And then other guys, it was cool because they would be like, Chris Couch used to tell people all the time, they because people would say to him all the time, hey, man, this dude must be just cracking jokes all day. And Couch was like, nah, he's he's really serious on the golf course unless I need it. If I need a joke or if I need something, he knows when to throw that in there. Like, Because so, it was so much different for me than stand-up comedy. That's one of the reasons I loved it so much is because comedy is just me. I'm I'm number one. Like, I'm the star. And Caddy, and you're the servant. And so you're the guy behind the curtain. But it's there's no other sport where there's something like this out there. You can't, I can't walk onto a Major League Baseball and whisper in a catcher's ear, hey, man, I know you think fastball's right here, but tell him to throw the curve. Right. Like you can't do that. Right. I can't walk onto a football field and like stand in a huddle. Right. Like I'm never going to be able to do that, but I can be on a golf course. And if a guy has a nine iron, I can tell him, Hey man, that's too much club. Or guy says, what, what's this putt going to do? I can tell him this putt's going right. And it's a little uphill, even though it doesn't look it or it's into the grain. 
And so, like, that was, to me, there's nothing else in the world like it. It's not the same as comedy. Then people ask what I like better. It's, I tell people all the time, and I still feel this way. Like, comedy, golf has my heart, and comedy has my soul. Michael, I got to take you back for a second to that 98 Walt Disney World Classic. Tell me about coming off the last hole and a guy asking you for your bib. Well, he tried to ask for my bib. <laughs> we walked over there. We walked <laughs> off of that green. And he was like, hey, sir, I'll, I'll take your, your caddy bib right here. And I was like, uh, no, you won't take this one. And he was like, I'm sorry, we, we have to collect all of the bibs. Well, you're going to be one short. Cause... <laughs> and I took it off and I folded it and put it in the golf bag and I was that looked at Omar and was like mm. <laughs> like gave him that look like you know you know like even if you try to go in there and take that thing it's gonna be a problem and so the guy laughed and was like all right all right you're you're good you're good because he he I guess he saw the seriousness in my face there's only been a couple of times where I've like felt to put the laser beam eyes on people be like hey man this here's what's going down one way or the other. Like you won't do this the easy way or the hard way, <laughs> but it's going to happen. My guy, I read that Ricky Fowler's agent actually calls you dream. Yeah. Why? Yeah. That's awesome, man. He's a, he's good, good people, man. He uh, also, ironically enough, Sam McNaughton also represents Amanda as well, which is great. Cause Sam is a Sam's a, a really good dude. Um but yeah, I've known Ricky. Ricky was at Q School with Omar and I back when Q School got you onto the PGA tour. And we both got through Q School that same year. And so when Sam and Ricky got together, Sam has kind of seen my career and where it's gone. So one year I was walking and I hear this dude going, Yo, dream, yo, dream. I look over and it's Sam. Yo, American dream. And I'm like, what? And I walk over and he goes, you are the American dream. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, no one who looks or sounds like you is supposed to have made it in this sport. In a sport where no one asked for you. No one necessarily wanted someone like you here. And yet you have taken yourself and become something in a sport that never had anything like that before and no one would no one knew that they needed it right like and so i really took that to heart like there was and it meant a lot to me that he calls me that because it it you know in a way i i do feel that way like i took something that wasn't there and just made something from made a spot where there was never a spot or wasn't supposed to be a spot, you know? And even to this day, there are people that were very nervous about like putting me on television or something like that. Cause they still think like, what if he switches into comedy mode? Be like, come on, man, I've been doing this for almost 30 years now. <laughs> like you think now I'm a slip up really? You now you think <laughs> is what I'm going to go just full out. Like, and I've worked for Disney for 13 years. You think now, is the time that I'm going to go crazy. All right. <laughs> Michael, I've heard you compare the Masters to other tournaments. Like the Masters is rolling Easter Sunday into Christmas Eve and Christmas morning at church. 
versus what every other Sunday is like. Talk about why that is. Well, what I tell people is there are two tournaments that have to be on your bucket list. And one of them is the Masters because of that, because it really is. You you do feel when you walk through those gates, um, you feel the history. Like you feel the specialness of that place. There's no other tournament that I'll go to that I'll take off my shoes and socks. Cause I I just wanna I wanna I want my skin and my being to touch that place. Like to really feel the grass between my toes. You know, it it is that special. But the other one is the polar opposite, is the complete opposite, and that's the WM Phoenix Open which is a combination of the hangover, uh, bachelor party, animal house, and I don't know, like all of the hangovers actually, and wedding crashers, like all wrapped into one. It's that, it's the opposite part of that, where it's like no holds barred, a frat college football party busted out. It's crazy. <laughs> but those two, those two events are so polar opposite. And then, the rest of the tournaments all fall kind of somewhere in between there. But the Masters is that one place where it's just a, it's really special. But if I'm being completely honest, like by Friday or Saturday, like I'm over walking on eggshells all the time, right? Like, because you're over it after a minute. Like if you're only there for a couple of days, it's awesome because you're like, wow, hallowed ground is amazing. But if you're there for like eight days, you're like, I get it. No cell phone. Right. I get it. No running. I I get it. I get it. Right. Michael, so, you and you and Pat Perez did a show together. That was so much yeah. fun to listen to. And Pat's a very straight shooter. And, and I was wondering how that was going to go when I heard you guys were going to do a show together. That's why we called it out of bounds. Yeah. How were you able to keep Pat from getting you guys kicked off radio? I don't know, man. I don't know. We always laughed at, you know, even my friends. It's like, wait, you're the one that keeps it on the rails? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, but that's also, I think, what made that show so good and, like, why it was so popular and why we loved it so much. And even when it went away, when it was on hiatus for a little bit, like, Pat came up to me and was like, man, I can't believe how many people keep coming up to me talking to me about the show. I'm like, that tells you something right there. Like people, the one thing that, that, you know, the one thing that people will never accuse Pat of being is being dishonest, right? He's not PC. He's not, he's not going to give you like the sunshine and rainbows and unicorn and happy cotton candy dancing answer. Like, don't ask him a question that might be controversial because you might not like the answer. And, you know, especially in today's world, a lot of times people ask questions, but they ask questions because they already know the answer they want to hear. So when they don't hear it, it's a problem. And Pat's one of those dudes that you just don't ask him. Then he ain't the guy to ask those questions to. But I think what made the show work was because we allowed everyone who called in to also feel that freedom. Right? Like, there aren't too many shows when it comes to golf where... You can honestly, you can honestly and without fear of repercussion, say what you feel, right or wrong. And we would argue about stuff and we would argue 
with people who would call in about stuff all the time too. But knowing that there's somewhere where you can honestly give your opinion without any kind of like mean repercussions or whatnot, it's just a show that gives you that kind of freedom. It's liberating to know. And I think that's what made it so popular. I think that's also the reason that we were on at night. <laughs> we they were not going to put us on in the, the morning drive when you had the kids going to school, right? You know, you were not going to put us on at five o'clock on the drive home and stuff when you might have kids in the car. But from eight to 10 on Tuesdays, like when Out of Bounds was on, it was on. And we had like such a voracious following. It was wild how we built it, you know, and it was, we just had fun, you know. The hard thing was when it was easy when him and I were together, which didn't happen a whole lot. The hardest shows were when he was at home and had like another, an extra week off because by the second hour, woof, <laughs> there was a whole lot of ice clinking in glasses. And by the <laughs> second hour, like the fourth glass had already been emptied and now it was game on. <laughs> like one of our best shows we ever did was right after the the first Bryson Brooks Kepka kind of dust up that happened. And then they had a dust, they had a like a little nose to nose talking at Liberty National. And that was the first time they were like face to face after they had exchanged a couple barbs. And we had them on our show at the same. We had them on together. Wow. Like talking. Yeah, it was to say it was one of the best. When it comes to controversy, stuff like that, it's not. Very every day where you get the two parties. On the phone, talking live on air. About it. And they did. They both came on with us. And it was awesome. I mean, awesome. The only part that wasn't awesome was it was hour number two and Pat was hammered. <laughs> and Pat as like, so I'm asking questions because I'm like, this is, this could be, this could be historic. Like these two talking this out. And so, but I'm trying to now stay on a straight and narrow and Pat is like doing what most dudes do when they get drunk. They, I'll ask a question and Pat wants to answer the question. <laughs> and finally, finally on the show, I'm like, Pat, shut up. No one <laughs> wants to hear you right now. Only people want to hear is Brooks and Bryson. You shut up. We got every show we can talk. And he just, and he knew he was hammered. So he just laughed. He laughed and then let them talk. And it was part of what made the show so amazing. You were on the bag for Rich Beam, which had to be a scream. One what? tournament. One tournament? That was yeah, it? Yeah, this, this is back when I was still doing stand-up comedy full-time. And so Rich, um, a couple of weeks before he won the PGA Championship, Rich was going on a stretch where he was playing six weeks in a row. And the last week, they were playing the Buick um, in Rye, New York, um, up at Westchester Country Club. And... He, his caddy had a child who was being christened, I think. And so the caddy needed the week off. Rich didn't want to bring just a, another tour caddy on because he knew that he was six weeks in. 
He was already going to be kind of tired. And he didn't want a guy like auditioning, thinking he was going to steal the bag from his caddy at the time, Bill. And so he called me and was like, hey, listen, you want to come caddy for me for a week? Here's the situation. I know you won't try to like steal the bag. And I was like, no, I'm doing stand up, dude. But yeah, I'll come up and caddy for you for a week. And we had. Oh, my. We still to this day, like talk about that. We, we made an eagle every round, including he eagled the par five 18th on Sunday. And did that dance. This is weeks before he wins the PGA championship. Beating Tiger um, in Kentucky at Valhalla. So I take a little bit of credit for that win. Just a smidge. You should. It is a smidge. But yeah, it was one of those. I mean, it was. It was great because he didn't he didn't think he was going to make the cut. I think we finished like 21st or something like that. I mean. He had a relatively good week, um, and it was great. And then I went back to doing stand-up, and Bill came back on the bag, and, you know, he had a really great and successful career after that. So it was it was really cool. Michael, I had the privilege of seeing you and saying hello to you last year here in Atlanta at the Tour Championship. You were walking down the middle of the fairway with a huge camera. I didn't know what a great photographer you were at the time, in which you are. I was surprised. I didn't know what a great photographer you are. Thanks, there and, and it's uh, a new, it's a new hobby. It's new, and it's it is Ken Griffey Jr.'s fault. Oh, yes, it is his fault because he is also an he. I, I don't say also. He is an extremely well versed and professional photographer. So, like, he takes photos for MLB at like the all-star game and stuff. Like he's that good. He, he, he is, he is definitely a professional. And so he knew that I kind of liked photography, but I, I never had like a really pro camera or pro lenses. I never had any of that stuff. So I was at the Ryder cup um, when it was at whistling Straits, and the Sony is there. They're doing all the services and taking care of all the Sony photographers. So I'm talking to him like, hey, man, Sony's here, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, go talk to the guy. Just go talk to him and, you know, tell him, you know, what you did. You want to know stuff like just ask him questions. All right, cool. I had a couple of hours to kill stuff before I had to do anything for ESPN.com. So I go in there. I start talking to the guy. And then he goes, you want to take one out to play with? And just the way he said it, like it was a toy. And I was like, all right, okay." Like, you're not going to say no. So this dude gives me a pro Sony camera and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. He goes, I set it up for you. So he sets it up, gives me this little memory card thingy. I go out there. He's like, just go take pics. Okay, cool. So I went out there and I start taking some pics and it is awesome because now these new Sony's they're silent. So I can stand right by the players. And when I hit the button, no noise, but you also then, have no idea how many pictures you're taking. And when these things are set up to take 30 to 60 frames a second, like you go through a thought <laughs> of pictures. <laughs> but he let me take this one of the cameras out. I took out a camera three days in a row. And on Sunday during the singles matches, I went out onto the first hole and started taking photos of like everyone's first tee shot and i was lucky enough to be there and some of the the other photographers left 
But I was there when Bryson not only drove the green on one, but after he drove the green, like the other photographers turned to leave and I just held the shutter thing button down. And I got the whole sequence of him walking off the tee box, his caddy handing him the putter, him raising the putter in the air. But then the other one that I got that I was really proud of was Sergio turned and gave him the thumbs up when they walked off the tee. And I was like, it's one of them. It's some of my proudest pictures that I ever took. And then, yeah, when I took them to, then I showed them both to, to Bryson and Sergio and the, well, first I showed him to the Sony guy and he was like, these are really good, man. These are like pro pictures. And I showed him to Ken and he was like, we got to turn these into NFTs, man. These are awesome. And I was like, are they really that good? And so from that moment on, then it was like, all right. The Sony guy was like, you know, let me know if you ever want to like look into getting a real pro camera. So next thing I know, I'm buying two bodies and lenses and all this. I'm going down a rabbit hole. But now I do really enjoy it. I really enjoy kind of the the art side of that about getting people's faces and emotions and stuff. And so um it's a rabbit hole that I was I'm very happy that I went down. Michael, just a couple more before I let you go. And one of my favorite guests here on the show is Kip Henley. I got That's my you- dog right there. Kip's my boy. So what's your favorite Kip Henley story? Oh, man, I don't know. I don't have a favorite Kip Henley story. Not one that I'm comfortable sharing with anybody. (laughs) And and I love Kip to death. And me and him have gotten to so many Twitter arguments all the time. You know, we definitely are on. I shouldn't say opposite because I'm a Kip leans politically heavy one direction. And I am a very staunch and firm centrist. I am. I am. I am very hardcore in my independence. I don't believe, I don't believe just one side and I never, and I've always been that way since I was a kid. Like, I don't like, you got to pick a team. Yeah. Nah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Cause that means it, that means that I'm saying one side can't be wrong and the other side is always wrong. I, I, that's just not who I am. I can't do that. So me and him have had all kinds of crazy blowups on social media, you know, about, politics stuff and and even some golf stuff as well that we don't necessarily agree on but i'll tell you one thing like as a brother in the world of caddying like i can say whatever i want about kit but if somebody else says something about him i'll punch him in the face because <laughs> that's how we are as caddy you know what i mean we protect yeah. our own so he just is i love i love his open honesty about like being out there as a caddy and like caddying for guys and stuff and i love that that he calls his wife the greenskeeper like i think that's (laughs) just amazing it's awesome like he's just a really he's a good guy to be around and a guy who i really like sitting down and having a meal with or having a beer with like he's 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 awesome i think the other guy the other great guy now uh the other great caddy to follow at least on twitter as well who i love is gino bonelli really yeah, yeah. If you follow, if you don't follow Joel Damon's caddy, like his caddy hotel posts of some of the nightmare places that he's been, it was places that me and Kip used to have to stay at all the time. 
So, but it's nowadays, you know, there's so much money on tour, caddy and nowadays, potentially, there's so much potential money out there that it's like, you don't normally get to stay at what we call caddy hotel. There aren't, there, you don't, there aren't places where you really have to stay a lot of those very many times anymore. Um, and Gino has had some nightmares, nightmares. And so it's kind of funny to, to watch and follow along. Michael, I saw Maddie trying to give you a hard time for wearing your Augusta Pimento cheese Bruh! t-shirt, right? That thing is always in style no matter where you're at. You know what it is, though? See, look, Maddie, <laughs> this is why me and him, he's my brother, man. He's my little brother. This dude, he's another one I would walk through fire for. He's one of the reasons that I'm on SportsCenter and have gotten to do sports and as much as I've gotten to do and has have blown up because of it. And it's because he was the one that lobbied hard to get me on sports center. He was the one who was like, I don't want the only golf guy I'm ever going to talk to is Mike. And it was me and him had had a relationship since like he was doing like hits out of the basement in at ESPN in Bristol for like two o'clock in the morning when three o'clock in the morning when no one was watching anything, you know, on ESPNU or something crazy like but he still has can have some prima donna tendencies he's still <laughs> never eaten at a real waffle house no yeah and he worked in south carolina for 5 years wow and he's and he's never been to cracker barrel man right yeah. and when he did go to the waffle house he went to was brand new and was like all shiny and clean and nice i'm like dude that you didn't go to waffle house dude <laughs> That was not Waffle House. And it was like in a real nice area. And I was like, dude, no, no, it doesn't count. So this, I'm going to try and get him to go to Waffle House. So when he got dressed, because we got invited to go to a steakhouse for dinner, like he got like Vegas dressed for the steakhouse. And I'm like, we're in Ocala, Florida, in horse country. And Ocala is just this tiny the downtown Ocala is maybe six square blocks total. And he's laughing at me because I got a t-shirt on. And I'm like, um, read the town first before you make fun of my t-shirt. <laughs> and because it's Augusta Green Jackets and the Pimento Cheese Sam. You know how many people hit me up asking, yo, where do I get that t-shirt? No doubt. And I told Maddie, I was like, you know how many people ask about your shirt? None. What does that tell you? <laughs> One of us had to fashion right. That's awesome. Michael, like I mentioned in your intro, you make the game so much more fun because you are a part of it. I Thanks, can't thank man. you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and be a part of the show. I hope I get uh, the privilege of having you on again sometime. Absolutely, soon. man. And Chris, thank you. I mean, I I can't even tell you like what those words mean. It means a lot. Like they do not go unappreciated. I know, and I'm the first person to admit to people, like, I know I'm the luckiest guy in the world to get to do what I do, like, to get to go hang out with the people I get to hang out with and see the things I get to see and do the things that I get to do. Like, I'm, I am so blessed and lucky that I get to do this. It's stupid. It's stupid how lucky I am. And I, I really, really, truly appreciate the fact that, that you like, like it too. I feel like sometimes I, you know, when I first started, I, go, I wonder who's really going to be into this. Like if anybody really will get this and the fact that you and so many others do and 
allow me to come on and do shows like this with you, man, and hang out and all those kind words you always put up on Twitter about following me and stuff. So it means a lot, man. So thank you. Thank you for everything you do as well. Absolutely. Let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with all the things you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or on social media, man. Uh, I got so much. This this summer is going to be crazy. I got, uh, at ESPN caddy, C A D D I E. That's usually the easiest way. Cause that's Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Basically, if you just put in, if you do a Facebook search and put in Michael Collins ESPN, then you'll find me. If you put Michael Collins in Facebook, you're either going to find Liam Neeson's movie, Michael Collins, or The Astronaut. <laughs> who I actually got to meet one time. And Did you? One of my shows way back in the day. Yes. And I tried desperately to get one of the watches that they that they wore up there, but that's that's a joke for another time when Omega played the worst fun I can laugh at it now. The cruelest, funniest Christmas prank on me ever. But that's for another show. <laughs> we'll hear that one next time. Michael, take care. All the best to you and your family. Good luck to your son tonight. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. You got it, brother. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you later, Chris. See you, Michael. See ya. That is the great Michael Collins. Is it any wonder why he's America's caddy? How much fun is that guy, and does he make our game? I'm 100% sincere when I say he makes the game so much better because he has become a part of it. You look forward to every interview, every show, everything that the guy does, and now he's a fantastic photographer on top of all of that. It's just so much fun having him as part of the show. I hope we get the privilege of doing it again soon. He is one of my absolute favorite people on this planet. And I've just met him, you know, uh, like I say, I met him briefly last year at the Tour Championship. And then we just got to spend nearly an hour with him. And I'm already excited and looking forward to the next time we get the privilege of doing it again. Michael's fantastic. Make sure you're following him out there on social media. And if he has a comedy show coming near you, you need to make sure you get tickets to go see it. I know I am. So Michael's fantastic. He is, uh, he's just one of a kind and looking forward to catching up with him again here soon on the show. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this special segment of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Michael Collins and to all of you for continuing to make Next on the Tee a part of your golf content. I appreciate you all so very much. Until next time, hit him straight, my friends.